This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, July 31st, 2016, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at restorationroadchurch.com. Amen. If you have your Bibles, if you'd open up to Genesis chapter 20, that's where we're going to spend our morning. We're going straight through Genesis. <clears throat> Excuse me, we've been in there for some time, and we will be in there for some time. And This week we're in Genesis 20. Thank you for being here. The sun is waiting for us to get home, so you're not missing anything yet. Um, but when you get out, it's going to be hot, I expect, but we'll see. Genesis chapter 20 is where we're at. I'm going to read, beginning in verse 1, and here's what it says. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the ter- territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, the king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. And now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, She is my sister? And she herself said, He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands I have done this. And God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it is I who have kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, turn the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning, called his servants, told them all these things, and the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? And Abraham said, I did it because I thought there's no fear of God at all in this place and they'll kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me, that every place to which we come say of me, he is my brother. Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, behold, my land is before you, dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It's a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone you are vindicated. And then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. This is God's Word. Now, last week we went through uh, one of the darkest, if you will, most wrath-filled chapters in all of Genesis, and both Abraham and Lot responded very differently to the very tangible and physical and real pouring out of God's wrath. Peter had called Lot righteous, I put it in quotes because I think the righteousness Peter talks about is really more in comparison to the ungodly culture he lived in, but so-called righteous Lot ends up hiding in a cave along with his two daughters. Now, Abraham, the man who was deemed righteous by God, journeys west. He leaves 
the hills that were overlooking the Jordan Valley where he had seen the smoke come up, where he assumed his nephew had died. He leaves there, probably not wanting to see it anymore, but also moving west toward a Philistine city, but really, I think, more into the presence of God. Respond very differently. Now, chapter 20, as you read it, following that big event, kind of feels like a speed bump in the story. It feels like a little bit of a a lull in the action because it really does very little to push the narrative forward toward what is the birth of the promised son, Isaac, in chapter 21, which they've been waiting for for 24 years. We're left to wonder, or you should wonder, as you read this story as part of the larger narrative, like, why add this chapter? Why put this in there? Because it seems unnecessary. And because God doesn't make mistakes or do things just accidentally, um, He has intentionally put this chapter in there, and we should pause and go, why? Why is it there? Because it adds, it seems, very little to the story. Well, there's a couple reasons that I've been thinking about. The first is just what it teaches us about man or mankind. The events of chapter 20 follow, as I said, what is probably one of the most disturbing chapters, but more than that, has one of the most disturbing ends of any chapter in all the Bible. It ends with a father in a cave who gets his daughters, two daughters, get him drunk to get him pregnant. Get him pregnant? That would be miraculous. No, to get them pregnant. Dark. Ugh. And you read that and you go, oh my goodness, compared to Lot, Abraham is a saint, right? You have this Abraham who walks away from the wrath, and you have Lot who's hanging out in a cave with his daughters, and you begin to think, man, Abraham has got it together. Well, I think one of the things that Lord wants to give us is some perspective, and that is we first must not think too lowly of Lot. As bad as it got for Lot, as horrible as decisions he made, we should never get to the place of pridefully thinking, that could never happen to me. I'll never do that. I'll never go that far. We should be careful thinking too lowly of Lot, but we should also be careful of thinking too highly of Abraham, who seems to make the right decision, who seems to do a lot okay. Genesis 20 is in a very sobering way, reminding us exactly of who Abraham is that he was made righteous by God. He was not righteous because of some work he did or some decision he made or because he was able to sin less than Lot was. They are both sinners, both broken, both equally lost. All of Genesis and really all of the Bible calls us to focus on the main character of the Bible, God. Not to focus on the minor details, if you will, but important details of what an individual man or woman does. It is to go, what is God doing in all this? What is God reflecting about himself? In this case, Genesis 19, it is his holiness. It is his justice. It is his wrath. And in Genesis 20, we also see a picture of his glorious grace. The second thing I think that brings this chapter into why it might be there or understanding of that teaches us a lot about God. Without doubt, both Abraham and Lot have one thing in common, and that is they both have a lot of fear. Specifically, they fear the world much more than they fear God. 
having made his mistakes at Sodom. We have Lot, who finds himself living in complete isolation away from everyone. He went to a little city. He was drug out of the city of Sodom, the city of just horrible wickedness. Drug out, told to go up to the hills, away west from the Jordan Valley. And instead he goes, can I just go to this little city over here instead? And he does. But when he gets to that city, the Bible says that he ends up moving out to the hills outside of the city because he's scared to live there in an effort to maybe protect the ones he loves, he ends up hiding away in a cave away from the world. And then you have Abraham, who, on the other hand, decides to live in the world, remain in the world, particularly at this Philistine city, but he does so in fear of the city around him and what they could do to him or his family. And ironically, sin finds them both. The guy hiding out in the cave trying to hide away and protect himself from the world, sin finds him. And Abraham, the guy who is deciding to live in the world and to try and follow God, sin finds him. They're both sinful and they're both fearful. But the issue at hand is not what we fear most. That's not what this is really about. It is about the fact that who we fear most. And who we fear most, you will find, is directly related to who or what we love most. Fear and love are intimately connected, and I pray that I can show you that today. Now, as we go into the first half of chapter 20, it deals with Abimelech, this king of this Philistine city, unbeliever, pagan. Abimelech is more of a title. It's kind of like Pharaoh. It's a You'll see other Abimelechs in the Bible, and it is not necessarily um, a name. It is a, a position, if you will. And Abimelech, this king, has great fear of God, more so than Abraham. When Abraham arrives in the city of Gerar, he tells those he meets, like, look, this is my sister. And we later find out in the chapter that this was an agreement that he had made with Sarah when they first left their home. We later learn, as Genesis 12 comes about, that the first time that they kind of played out this agreement is when they went down to Egypt. Perhaps you remember that if you were here. It was... Sarah was in her 70s and it had disastrous consequences, but it ended up in Abraham being blessed. Now, several years later, with Sarah in her 90s. Alright, let's think about this for a second. Okay? So, in her 70s, she was beautiful enough for Pharaoh to go, dang, bring her in here. The king of Egypt, right? Okay, now she's in her 90s. This guy has a full harem of brides and women. And he's like, dang, Look at that nine-year-old. All that to say, Sarah must have been beautiful. To even be worried that that would happen, she must have been a beautiful woman. At least enough to get the uh, attention, if you will, of a king. And so the king comes and says, hey, you married? And Abraham says, absolutely she is. No. He says, no, that's my sister. Fantastic. 
Come on in. And Abraham doesn't say a peep as she goes to the home of a godless king. And immediately, seemingly as we read the text, the king and all of his servants are struck with some kind of disease. Something that prevents any of them from really him touching her, but them really touching each other. All the women are barren. They're not able to do anything. Not sure what's going on. Abimelech goes to sleep, and God comes to him in a dream. And his conversation with Abimelech is quite interesting. It sounds like the angry words that you would hear from a jealous husband whose wife has been taken. The kind of thing that you may have expected Abraham to say. God shows up, and the very first thing he says, you're a dead man. You are a dead man. Why? You took a man's wife, one of my daughters, the wife of Abraham, you're a dead man. And Abimelech freaks out a little bit. He says, I'm innocent in this conversation and dream. I'm innocent. Right? I saw this woman. I, she was pretty. I admit, this has been my practice. But I asked. And Abraham said, that's my sister. In fact, I asked her. And she said, oh yeah, that's my brother. I'm innocent. And God confirms that. He says, I know. I know you're innocent. But I'm the one who stopped you from touching her. Right? He's like, I didn't touch her. I didn't touch her. Don't think too highly of yourself, Abimelech. You would have if I hadn't stopped you. I stopped you. I put this disease. I've plagued you. I've plagued all of your household. And then he instructs him. He instructs Abimelech to say, look, you are to take Sarah back. You are to give her back to her husband. And you are to ask him, because he is my prophet, to pray for you so that your entire household will be healed. And he says, if you don't do this in his dream, you can imagine him sweating, you know, full nightmare here. He's scared to death. This is not just, you know, some fluffy God like on a cloud. This is like scary. He's scared. He's like, if you don't do this, I'm going to kill you and everyone else. There's a lot to learn from this passage. Just even that little exchange, there's a lot to learn. Particularly about how God just works in the world. And it's the kind of thing that like, I could probably preach a whole sermon on, but I'll just hit a couple points and then focus on one of them. First thing is that you have God in His dream appealing to the sense of morality of a non-believer. As if there's this underlying sense of morality that everyone has. He doesn't appeal to the law, although certainly there might be laws uh, governing this, but the question is, why do those even laws exist? There is a level of rightness and wrongness that is built into the heart of men that they just know, and he doesn't say anything like, adultery is wrong, you know that, it's illegal. He just says, you have done something that's wrong, you have sinned against me, and you know it. There's a sense of morality that we can appeal to in everyone, believer or not, that they know where the line is, whether they want to acknowledge it or not. Secondly, though, you see that God stops 
an unbelieving man, but regardless, a man from sinning by bringing physical pain into his life. He does something physically to this man to stop him from doing something spiritually. And it at least causes us to start to wonder, when does God do, does God, I guess God does that. I have had a back whacked out for about a month now. It's incredibly debilitating. I can't stand it. However, I've reading this passage, I began to go, okay, so what? Is it possible that God is using this to prevent me from doing something that I would like to do? that I shouldn't do? The reality is God does much in our life, brings pain into our life, even suffering into our life to protect us from things that we would have done without it. Crazy. Makes us look at things very differently. But I think the most important thing, at least for our time today, is that God motivates unbelieving Abimelech, this pagan, through fear. And we have to wonder, how does the fear of God govern our own decision-making? How often does the fear of God and who He is dictate what we do or cause us to think? It's this last point that I want to focus on most because Abimelech is incredibly fearful. He wakes up from his dream. I'm sure everyone's had nightmares where where you uh, experience something terrifying, something scary, something that seems so real. And then you wake up and you're like, "Ah." okay, that's not real. That's not what Abimelech does. Abimelech gets up early and he immediately goes and he tells everyone in his house, let me tell you what has happened. Let me tell you what God, who spoke to me in my dream, said. Let me tell you what this guy Abraham did. And let me tell you what's going to happen if we don't fix it. And his entire household is scared, it says. They are afraid. Then, he begins to take steps to obey what God says. And he obeys better than I would argue many believers do. And he does so because he simply believes and trusts what God said. He believes in this case that if he does not obey what God said, he will be killed along with those that he loves. And so he takes that seriously. He actually fears that God will kill him. But then... The last thing he does before giving Sarah back to Abraham, he calls in Abraham for a private meeting. An unbelieving Abimelech admonishes a believing Abraham. And I've said this before, when you get to a place where unbelievers are calling you to be more biblical than you are, you perhaps are in a bad place. Ask them three simple questions. Number one, what have you done? What have you done? Number two, how have you, I sinned against you that you would do this to me? But then the most important one, what did you see when you came into my city, when you saw me that would cause you to do this? And Abraham's response is interesting. He reveals his fear, and it's very much intended to contrast the fear that Abimelech has of God. Abraham says, look, here's why I did it. Because I thought there is 
no fear of God in this place when I came in and I thought for sure you were going to kill me because of my wife. And there's a lot of irony in that statement, obviously. You got Abimelech the pagan who is very eager to make things right because of how much he fears God, while Abraham, who is admittedly and clearly the one who believes, does not. At least, he doesn't fear God as much as he fears the world. And for the second time, right? Scholars argue about this passage because it's so similar in terms of the story that happened in Genesis 12 and the story that's happened in Genesis 20. They're like, this has got to be the same story. For the second time, he does the exact same thing. He trusts more in what he can see. Puts more faith in in the power of his circumstances and how he imagines it's going to unfold than he does in the unchanging faithfulness and power of God in that circumstance. He is more concerned at that moment as he looks at, okay, this is getting bad. I'm going to go ahead and um, dishonor God but save my life as opposed to, no, I'm going to stand for what is right even if it means losing my life. We learn through his actions that he doesn't fear God. He's a man that doesn't fear God. And so for many of us, we go, okay, um, I say I believe in Jesus. I say I'm a Christian. How do I know if I, if I fear God or not? What's that look like? What's the test? Fantastic question. Abimelech's test is awesome. And Abraham's response reveals in his heart that he doesn't really fear God. And here's the test. When someone confronts you with your sin, how do you respond? How do you respond? Abimelech and his questions reveal that Abraham really doesn't fear God. He fears the world much more. Why? The first time he's asked, why did you do this? Just like anyone who doesn't fear God, you'll justify your sin. You'll give good reason for your sin. A good sounding reason. I thought you were going to kill us. I mean, you're slaughtering animals and you just look like a really evil people. You're generally pretty way more immoral than I've seen. I mean, heck, you looked even really kind of close. to. I mean, you guys are wicked. I thought you were going to kill me. Sounds justifiable. But the fear of God in a person when confronted with sin, you won't make such excuses. You will just own it. You also see that he begins to minimize his sin. What does he say, right? Well, I thought you guys were going to kill me, and technically speaking, she is my sister, right? I mean, we have the same dad, but we don't have the same mom, so I'm not really lying. I'm not deceiving you in the truest sense. It's not as bad as you think. When you're confronted with your sin, if you have a temptation to minimize, in that moment, you fear something worse than you fear God. Someone who truly fears God will not minimize their sin. They will acknowledge it completely. They will not hide behind the details. Man, you lied to me. Well, I didn't really lie. I just kind of told you half of what was going on. You didn't really forgive me. Oh, I've forgiven you. I mean even though I'm really resentful still in everything that I see in you and do with you, I'm governed by that resentment and bitterness. But I mean, I forgave you when I said I forgave you. 
You minimize what's actually going on. But I think the worst part, when you see someone who fears something more than God, you will blame shift. You notice what Abraham does, it sounds very much like the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, when Adam was confronted by God, he came and says, what have you done? Did you eat what I told you not to eat? And he says, well, the woman that you gave me, what? First, let me blame the woman who gave me the fruit, but you're the one that created her. You're the one that brought her into here, God. And what does Abraham say? Well, I had to make this agreement with my wife because God caused me to wander from my home. I mean, he sent me on a scary mission and, and we didn't know what was going to happen. We were going to go into a godless land. I had to do this. I mean, if God wouldn't have asked me to do this, then I wouldn't have had to sin like this. No fear of God, but fear of a lot of other things. See, the truth is, we all, at some level, are going to be governed by one of two kinds of fear. Either the fear of God or the fear of something in the world. Fear of creation, call it, or fear of the Creator. One or the other is going to govern not just your actions, but even your perceptions and, and certainly your decisions. The Bible uses fear over 300 times to talk about God. The book of Proverbs, you may have heard, says that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. Romans chapter 3, we're told, among many things, a lack of fear in God is the greatest of problems for mankind. But despite all kinds of verses about fear, there I think remains a lot of confusion about exactly what it means. I mean, are we to live in fear that God might kill us if we make a mistake at any moment? Are we supposed to live scared like God is the boogeyman just watching us from you know, the darkness and going, ha, ah, I got you sinning, zap. Is that the kind of fear we're talking about? Well, for the unbeliever, for the one who does not acknowledge God as good or great, who refuses to submit to His authority, who will not thank God for all that He has done in your life, for the unbeliever who does not, does not give Jesus Christ a thought beyond being a good teacher or some humble, sad victim of a corrupt government, for those who are not believers, there should be in your life a genuine fear of God's judgment. This is not merely fear of death. This is the fear of an eternal death. A forever death. Now Jesus Himself, right? Jesus, loving Jesus, meek Jesus, humble Jesus, servant Jesus, warned us of this Himself. In Luke chapter 12, he writes, Do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear Him who after He has killed has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear Him. That's Jesus' own words. Jesus warns those He's teaching. And He's teaching both irreligious people who want nothing to do with the one true God and religious people who think they're following Him. 
He's telling warning in this way because our natural inclination is to fear something else more than God. And essentially, for those who do not fear God, you certainly fear something. Usually you fear losing whatever you love most. And if what is most precious to you is threatened or is something you can have taken away, something you can lose, you should fear losing it. Whether it's health or wealth or relationships or power or respect, did you realize that all of that can be taken away given enough time, given the right kind of circumstances? So many evil things in the world to threaten whatever it is you love most in the world. But for those who do not believe, I want you to know there's something more frightening than the totality of all the evil in the world we live in. And there's a lot. As the writer of Hebrews said in verse, chapter 10, verse 31, it is a frightening thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The judgment of God is to be feared. And like unbelieving Abimelech, it has the power to move us to do whatever he says will protect us from his judgment. Now for the believer, what do I mean by that? For those who trust that when you stand before God on the day of judgment, that the only reason you have the right to be there is because what Jesus has done for you. For those who trust that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and that He gave you the obedience that you could never muster given all the time in the world to try and create perfection. For those who trust Jesus for their life, the fear of God is something totally different than what Abimelech's experiencing. Jesus transforms the fear of God for the believer. I think it's best said by one of his best friends, John, in his first epistle, chapter 4. Listen carefully. It says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have, some to, we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence when? For the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. Why? Because perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. The cross removed all fears for those who believe. We fear God still, but not in the same way. In Christ, we have no fear of condemnation, no fear of punishment, no fear of future judgment because our sin has been overcome by God's love on the cross. 
our judgment has come. Jesus meant something when He said it is finished. But while the cross removes the fear of God's wrath, it doesn't remove our fear of God, our reverence for God, our respect for God, our recognition of who God is. On the contrary, it restores it. See, in Christ, the fear of God compels us to live fearlessly in the world. Well, why? Because we realize that there is nothing in this world, not height, nor depth, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And nothing can take away what we have received from God. The only reason we fear the world is because we fear it's threatening to take away what we love most. But if we, what we love most cannot be taken away, we live without fear. Nothing we receive from the world could ever compare with what we already have. But it's more than that. In Christ, the fear of God compels us to live in awe of God. Our fearfulness that we genuinely experience in the world, in various circumstances, loss of different kinds, pain of different kinds, even the fear of death, that's overcome by the reality that our God entered into our greatest fears, literally. The Son of God took on human flesh and experienced genuine fear, faced the fears that we could imagine were worst, and He did that for us. We're awed by a God who would not just stay distant, but would actually enter in, not withhold Himself. And as the Bible says, if God would not withhold His own Son, why would we ever fear that He would withhold any good thing from us? And we sit in awe of a God who would do that. A God who would love that way. A God who would face pain for us. Whatever the world might have to offer is rubbish in comparison to that. But again, more than that, the fear of God in Christ compels us to live lives that are pleasing to God. And I know for many of us, we're like, oh, what do you mean pleasing to God? Stay with me. With the fear of punishment removed, with the fear of failure removed, we can strive to please God without fearing failure. And believing that we have promises of joy, even if it means physical loss here, tangible loss here. Living for God, regardless of circumstance, becomes more important than just simply living. We risk more for God. We sacrifice more for God. We deny ourselves more for God so that He is honored and pleased. And we find, we believe, our joy. But the fear of God also, and lastly, compels us to live with an eternal perspective. It means we live believing that whatever good works we might accomplish here, they're not just temporary. Whatever relationships that we build and invest in here, they're actually eternal. That suffering is not meaningless. That death is not actually the end. 
we begin to view everything we have, every relationship we have, every opportunity we get, every decision we make, they have eternal implications for us. That what we do here matters somewhere else in the most glorious of ways. See, the cross of Christ completely changes our relationship with God for those who believe. He who is a judge became a father to us. And in Christ, we are His children. Children who have tremendous respect for such an amazing, perfect, radically loving Father. And we desire to please Him. In some sense, we do have a real anxiety, if you call it that, or fear of offending the one we love, of dishonoring our Father, not because we're afraid He's going to punish us or that we're going to screw up enough for Him to kick us out of the family, but rather we're just simply afraid of displeasing the one who is the source of our love and who has given us all things. Now, apart from Christ, we cannot please God or save ourselves. Consider Abimelech, right? Consider everything Abimelech did to make it right with God. There was a pile of things that he was never asked to do. Right? Here, slaves, male servants, female servants, cattle, land, money. You can have all of this. God never asked him to do any of that thing or any of those things. And none of those things were going to heal him. He had been told that healing would only come through the prayer of Abraham. It doesn't matter how much work you do, how many good things you do, how many awesome, amazing works you do, if you are not in Christ, you cannot please God no matter how pleasing you think it is. On the contrast, in in Christ, it's very different. And some like to argue that, well, we can't please God any more than He's already pleased in us. I mean, He sees Jesus when He sees me, right? And I would say, yes, I, I agree with you theologically. But I also argue that if the Bible says that we can grieve God, it also says that we can please Him. That He can rejoice over us. That He can still weep over us. But He also can find joy in us. And His unconditional love for us never changes. It's like our own children, right? I love my children. Nothing is going to change that, though there are without doubt times when they disappoint, when they grieve my heart, when they rebel. But my love for them doesn't change even if it makes me sad. Even if it hurts. And there are those times when they do amazing things that bring me joy. That, that caused me to be pleased. My love for them hasn't changed. Like, well, I love you a lot more today, right? That's not how it works. And many times, their efforts are honestly half efforts and broken efforts. And what they're doing is, is maybe not that great, but I go, that's awesome. Can you imagine the Lord doing that? That every little effort now, because we have no fear of failure, He delights in every little effort, however broken or little it might be. And He says, yeah, man, I love you. That makes me joyful. In Christ, that is the experience we have. And we can and we do please the Father whom we fear. And as we aim to honor Him by how we live, 
We never have to fear that our work is ever not good enough. Or that somehow it's going to be off to like, "Mm, well, you're out now. That'll never happen. And as we close it out, I want to finally consider Abraham, who I said before, not only sins, but makes the exact same mistake he made before. Maybe that sounds like you. I don't know how many times that you've instructed your children, don't do this, and then they do it. Don't do this, and they do it. I told you not to do that a thousand times. What's wrong with you, right? God never does that to Abraham. He does the exact same thing. He screws up the exact same way. It's not like kind of close. That's why scholars are like, I think this is the same story. Like, repeats the same mistake and has the same disastrous consequences. And yet, God never condemns Abraham. In fact, even though Abraham will come up in the New Testament, in Romans, and in Galatians, and in Hebrews, this event will never come up. You know why that is? Because in this story, we're not to see what Abraham or Abimelech does. We're to see what God does and who He is. In reality, God uses a sinner like Abraham to minister to a sinner like Abimelech. And can you imagine what Abimelech felt? He comes to Abraham. He's like, all right, Here's some female servants. Here's some male servants. Here's some cattle and some sheep. And here's some money. And here's some land. All this for lying to me. Thanks for lying to me. Here's a bunch of gifts for you. Now could you pray for me? I mean, what do you think Abimelech felt at that moment, right? Here. You lied to me, jerk. Yeah, God, it's disease. I'm like, now pray. How much confidence does Abimelech have in Abraham? You're asking me, this liar, to pray? All right, whatever. I have enough fear in you to believe that it could be that crazy. But consider for a moment Abraham. What did Abraham feel in that moment? Yeah, you're supposed to pray for me. What? He wasn't asked to do that before in the first go around. He just got blessings, right? And he walked out with a bunch of money from Egypt. Yeah, you're supposed to pray for me. I'm supposed to. I'm, I lied to you. I'm supposed to pray for you? Does, does God know about this? Yeah, I'm pretty sure he knows about it. He said, you're supposed to pray and that will heal me. So you better pray. Wow. Do you think maybe Abraham for a moment felt, who am I? God didn't come and spank him. God didn't come and condemn him. God used him. And I believe that God actually put, if you will, the fear of himself in Abimelech so that Abraham would see enough love for him to have the fear of God restored in his heart. What fear. What love. Reminds me of Romans 2.9. It says it is the kindness of God that leads one to repentance. And it's my 
firm conviction that in that moment Abraham said, oh, who am I to pray for you? What fear, what love. See, what we fear most is directly related to what we love. And if we love something you can lose, man, you'll do anything, even sin, to stop from losing it. But if you know the love of God, something that cannot be lost even when you screw up, you'll never fear. Fearing God begins with accepting His love. And that's a daily thing. It begins with accepting His love despite what you know you've done. Despite what you've not done. Or despite what you know about yourself that no one else does. And the fear of God will continue in your life insofar as you continue to surrender to Him despite what you see, think, or feel about yourself or experience in the world. So we don't need to hide away in a cave away from the world. And we certainly don't need to be in the world scared of what's going to happen. We need to live in the world in fear of God, knowing that He knows it all and He still loves us. Let's pray.